Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. We are your hosts, the wrong boys, Sean here. I'm Aaron. And yeah, we got not a typical Seriously Wrong episode, not even really a Seriously Wrong episode, more of an episode of a different podcast that Sean was a guest on. Yeah, and you might have been able to figure this out from the title of the episode in the podcatcher, but I'll just lay it out to be extremely clear. I went on a podcast called Labor Wave Radio. They've got a series called After the Revolution, where they bring on people to help imagine what the world could look like after the abolition of capitalism. And the subject that I chose to talk about was malls the shopping mall and what a shopping mall might look like under a library socialist society. So this is just an interview that was last year and really interesting conversation just off the cuff about thoughts and feelings related to the subject of malls, revolution, prefigurative politics, library socialism, and the rest of it. Really happy to share it with all of you here in the feed. If you like it, go check out the rest of the After the Revolution series in Labor Wave Radio at laborwaveradio.com. The host, Alex, super sharp guy, great politics, highly recommend it. Before we move on to the show, there's another piece of news we wanted to share with people if they weren't already aware. Yeah, so for a while, I've been kind of watching what's been going on on YouTube and Twitch politics, streaming sphere, streaming left-wing political content, and something about it was really attractive to me. We do so much editing on our show, and I was like, well, you know, what would it be like to not do any editing at all and just put something out there, just doing it live? So I recorded a test stream, and it's on our YouTube channel right now. So you can go check that out if you want to hang out with me for about two hours. I'm going over this video of a Ted Kaczynski article where he's essentially making the argument that left-wing activists are part of the system. Yeah, so if you've ever heard anyone make that argument and you want to hear some counter arguments in a more casual stream environment, that's up on the YouTube channel. Yeah, and we will be returning. The next season of Seriously Wrong will be starting in May and going through the summer, and we're looking forward to share with what we've been working on there. So expect to hear from us again soon. And I think the streaming thing is probably something we're going to keep experimenting with and playing with because it is like the video you made is great content, Aaron, of like going over these different arguments in a meticulous sort of like responding stream kind of way. So one of the tools in the toolkit, we're expanding the seriously wrong toolkit. So maybe over the next year, you'll see us experiment and try out some other different stuff as well. If you want to see us continue doing those experiments, if you're interested in allowing this project to continue to grow, to take what we do and expand it to include a whole lot more people and a whole lot more voices. And we're trying to do that a little bit now. And part of that process is building a team who can help us produce and edit the show the way we have been doing on an ongoing basis that all doesn't rely on a one-person editing team. So we're, we're really interested in building that out and in continuing to make the show that we've always made and branching out into more other things as well. And if you want to help us do that, our Patreon is really the way to do that. Yeah. And of course, we'll take financial support, whatever way you want to try to arrange that. We can take PayPal and stuff as well. But Patreon feed is a really quick and easy way to do it. You can customize how much you want to give. You get access to the bonus feed, which includes a bunch of you know, behind the scenes conversations, bonus episodes, including the Revolution series, and access to a great Discord community and book club. We do weekly readings. It's a great community with lots of interesting stuff happening on it. So if you're not already on it, consider checking it out. And if you're reaching for your Patreon card now, Thank you so much for 
helping make the show. And actually on that note, Labor Wave Radio has a Patreon feed as well. So if you like what you hear today and you go check them out, check out their Patreon. Well, yeah, let's listen to some Labor Wave. Let's hop in. Labor Wave Radio and Opening Space for the Radical Imagination presents Malls After the Revolution with Sean from Seriously Wrong Podcast. have a perfect mall that works and it's static. We can think of a bunch of different things that are the conditions of a good mall that we can try to increase over time, like, you know, making sure that community members have access. We could try to make a static mall, but it's like trying to paint the smell of oranges, trying to translate the taste of soup into a song. It does not follow. Hey listeners, this is the fourth installment of an ongoing mini-series called After the Revolution. We structure each of these conversations in a similar fashion where we begin with an analysis of why the topic at hand is important to consider, then what does it look like after the revolution, and finally conclude with how do we get there. This episode is on malls after the revolution with Sean from the Seriously Wrong podcast. Seriously Wrong is a utopian leftist comedy podcast. They put out so much content over the years. I believe they're in episode 221 at this point. And a lot of their conversations touch on things like what they call library socialism. So we were really excited to bring Sean onto this show to bring the spirit of his utopianism with them discussing malls. Part of the impetus for organizing this miniseries is the recognition over how capitalism oppresses us in many different ways, including by the collective domination of our imagination. The classic Thatcher slogan, there is no alternative, perfectly encapsulates the ways in which capitalism has colonized our thinking around what's possible or even permissible to think about. This is not the product of shallow imaginations, but rather imaginations full of syndicated representations and patchwork ideologies invented to have us believe that there are no viable alternatives to what currently exist. But to imagine such a static state of affairs is to be seduced by pure fantasy, and it is the contention of this miniseries that we can inspire a different imagination. Our conversation with Sean talks about how malls can become sites of community building, beach parties, radical pedagogies, and much, much more. We also talk about the dangers in believing that revolution is a single thunderclap event, or that we can have permanently fixed and static institutions governing our societies in ways that reach utopia and never have to be changed. But rather, revolution, at least brought into this conversation by Sean, should be understood as a series of 
processes and creative reinterpretation of what currently exists. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by listeners like you through our Patreon. So if you enjoy our content and want to pitch in on supporting the show, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash laborwave. Each tier of our Patreon comes with gifts that we give to our subscribers, including custom-made stickers, original illustrated zines of all of our After the Revolution episodes, so the next transcript will be coming out soon, and Labor Wave t-shirts, drawn and made custom for each of our listeners by our resident artist. If you can't afford to pitch in, you can also support the show by liking and following us on our social media and sharing our content. Also, give us reviews wherever you might listen to us, because this helps us reach new listeners. With that, we hope you enjoy this episode on Malls After the Revolution. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because your show often does talk about utopia. Library socialism in particular is a really fun series of conversations you've had. But you wanted to talk specifically about malls and what malls might look like after the revolution, which I I just think is a really fun thing to kind of focus on. So before we get to the after the revolution, I want to hear from you, like, why does it matter to think about malls and what's the current situation? So on the on the question of malls, um, <laughs> one one thing like when I was when I was younger, even before I was apolitical, I remember encountering sort of anti-capitalist, anti-consumerist critiques that were talking, you know, about the supply chains and production, and like, you know, making really good points about the material limits of the planet we live on. But it was always sort of framed through this sort of like sheeple, you know, people are so dumb, they want to buy products and blah blah blah. But then like even the people who say that obviously they don't like to buy products per se they're not like I love the commo- I love commodities specifically but they want the things that they want and they like to go and choose between things and they like to go to a social space and my understanding is actually that the mall at its original incarnation when it was dreamed of the shopping mall it wasn't like oh this is a place that we're going to extract as much money as possible from people the thought would was that by mixing the market and the community, you could create community spaces. Um, so that's been sort of lost over the years with these mall security guards and stuff like that. Poverty and homelessness crisis going in these cir- circles where, you know, they feel people don't want to shop at the mall if you let it be a community space because not everyone has the needs of society. But yeah, I remember even a long time ago being like, actually, shopping is good, except for the money and the <laughs> Like, no one's like, oh, I'm a shopping addict. I love seeing my bank account go down. They want to go look at clothes they like. They want to go look at books they like. They they want to, um, and I think specifically with books, that's my sort of, if I'm a shopping addict for anything, it's like, oh, this little book can become a part of me by taking it with me home. It, but I know, like, libraries are better. But there's something that's so satisfying of being like, I'm taking this and I'm going to hold on to it for as long as I want. It's part of me. Um, so I think that as utopians, um, as people who are thinking about what the world should be like, what it ought to be like, and what it would be like in a just society, we can look at something like the mall as something that's complex and that has awful, awful aspects of it that we can address, but try to not let that get confused with either positive, like the community, or neither good nor bad, like taking things to use because you like them. 
And if it's a type of expression, like we criticize conspicuous consumption, people expressing themselves through their purchase purchases. But like, do you care about human expression? Because if you care about human expression and you value it, the problem isn't the expression. It's it's the money. It's passing on the money. It's the supply chains and all of that. So I think to think that there won't be something like a mall, you know, after the revolution in an ideal society, I don't I don't buy it. That's really interesting. You know, I I've worked at malls. I'm trying to go back in my own memory here, but I worked at the Mall of Georgia, which is the biggest mall in the southeast. That was what they bragged about. Who knows if that was actually true? It was supposed to be the biggest mall in the Southeast. It was trying to compete with like the Mall of America that I believe has like a roller coaster in it. It's so big. It's <laughs> just like um, slightly out of the Mideast or something like. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't actually I, I think it's in Minnesota. Right. But I don't know. But the Mall of Georgia was just gigantic and it had a skate park built into it and like uh, t- like those trampolines on the outside, like before you entered it. I worked there for two years. And a lot of like the folks that did show up there were just young people like me at that time. I was like my teenager back then because we lived in Buford, Georgia, where there's like absolutely nothing to do. So we gravitated to this kind of hub, this social space like you're talking about. And I never really thought about it that way. Working there, I also saw the emergence of way more security guards. Uh, this was like right when they started introducing segways into the mall because the security guards got segways to help speed up and make more expedient their work in like surveilling and policing people. And I also saw the kind of decay and collapse of the mall, which now I have to kind of guess a little bit, but this is something I think is interesting about your conversation, like wanting to have a conversation about malls is it seems like today, while there's still gravitation towards malls and that desire for maybe kind of like a social space that's not purely consumerist like you're talking about, there's also this deep crisis that malls are going through. And there's like a crisis of the shopping center because of online and e-commerce buying is like making brick and mortar retail kind of obsolete. So is this, has this been your experience? Is this mapped to the reality? I think so. It's hard to, like, I don't, I don't, I don't have data on the trends that I've seen, but I've noticed that the mall over time, the move towards, you know, more predatory types of stores, like stores that are selling worse products for higher prices. Uh, I understand like the cost of real estate is really high for this stuff. And all it seems to me like all the problems that you're describing could really be connected to how all this stuff is structured based on like the profit motive at every step along the way. And then if something has a community value, it needs to be paid for by someone. And it used to be that it'd be paid for by the mall leadership because they're taking the rent and it's coming from all the different stores and stuff like that. And you could reliably think people are coming to the mall. But then, yeah, with the current era where you have like, Amazon and online shopping. You know, Amazon's like a mall that you can stumble into naked drunk at three in the morning <laughs> and like um, buy stuff that you don't even remember. Like that's a huge advantage. Yeah. So I mean, if we value the social space of the mall, I think we are going to have to have a conversation about how the profit motive functions in these places. Because I, I, I expect that the trends you're talking about would only continue and it, it makes you think that maybe the mall would cease to be a viable business model. Like, is there a future where municipal councils are putting tax dollars into sustaining the mall so people can go <laughs> buy the cheap overpriced as seen on TV stores that were able to survive through all of this? I would predict probably yes, if things continue the way they're going. Because I could, to- yeah, I could really imagine that city council meeting of like, the mall is so important. Like, 
we're going to fund the Starbucks. We're going to fund all this stuff to make sure that the, you know, the mall stays. We'll use government money to send out mailers reminding people to support their local businesses. And sort of like framed against Amazon or something. Well, right. Like you're saying, if things continue with this trend, like what I perceive is the possibility that these malls are just going to become like empty spaces, like huge pieces of infrastructure that are just not utilized in any way because we live under capitalism, which is a profit-driven system. So there's no reason to fill this stuff up with like the social good. The only thing that malls are filled with now is primarily for commodities and consumerism. So if they go under, like, what's going to happen to all these malls under capitalism? Are they just going to be like caves that just start blights on the land? Probably knock it down, replace it with condos. Mm, um, right. <laughs> stuff. I guess it depends on the land use in the city. The more spread out cities, they'll just like let it rot. You know, the really tight cities, they'll replace it all with condos. I think thinking about the mall um, brings up this concept that my co-host on Seriously Wrong, Aaron, brought up to me. He, he, he uses the phrase creative reinterpretation. The basic point is that no matter what your strategy, no matter what your theory of change, at the end of the day, if you want to like design a better society from this one, there's going to be a lot of creative reinterpretation of what, what's already there that's necessary. So that could be blighted malls, that could be prisons, that could be police stations. We need to find a way to creatively, creatively reinterpret what this space is. I mean, we can just knock stuff down and build it up again. But um, I think the ecological practice of knocking down buildings and building up new ones uh, creates like a ton of carbon emissions. You need to bring all these trucks in to take things in and out and stuff like that. And if we already have structures that are good to go, uh, we need to figure out how to reuse them in different ways. And I think the mall is a really, really great example of that. I mean, you could even have malls that, you know, have housing instead of stores. It's not not totally impossible, but I sort of favor this idea of the mall as it is. Like, how can we keep as much of the mall as possible while reinterpreting it? Just because that tiny little point of like, I stand with the shopping addicts. They're not totally crazy. They're not sheep. They're not like, they want to express themselves. Expressing yourself is important and will continue to exist even in a just society. And like, yeah, that's my my little like hill to die on here. I think it's a really interesting idea, that concept of creative reinterpretation. And I, could, I guess you could really see in some ways we're, we're observing this, maybe not with malls specifically, but I'm thinking about like stadiums for professional sports leagues. Like for instance, um, the Superdome in New Orleans was creatively reinterpreted in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina to house people, right? To become like a, a zone for refuge. And you see that in other crisis moments too. And now with the NBA, uh, this isn't necessarily creative reinterpretation, maybe in the same way that you are talking about it, but the players reinterpret it, their stadiums that they play their sport in and do their work in and their job as sites that could be turned into voting booths for election day. I mean, so we're kind of seeing some glimpses of this. Do you think there's other ways we're seeing glimpses of this, maybe when it's more particular to malls? I don't know about malls specifically, but I think we would probably see glimpses of that in various kinds through all institutional forms since we were tool-bearing hominids. Like, I think there's there's probably nothing more fundamentally human than looking at an object that's been used one way before and figuring out another way to use it. It, 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 it seems like, if anything, we should be completely drowned. Drown, we should be completely drowning in examples of this. It's like, I mean, right now, I'm using a computer. My computer desk was bought as an as a kitchen table. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other things that I've re like. I use a stool for a lamp stand. I've definitely jerry rigged a lot of things in my house to just 
make the most out of it. Put a laptop on a chair, you can build a whole um, a whole home entertainment unit. There's an interesting Buckminster Fuller quote. He says, oh, what's the word he used? He, the basic premise of the quote is that when the Titanic is sinking, a door might make a great lifeboat. And it's not the way you design a lifeboat, but it could save you in a pinch. And he says, technologically, our society is completely 100% lifeboats made out of doors. But if we really think about how to remake it, we can actually make a boat, like a lifeboat that's legit made to save people. That's like the, the premise of what he was saying. And I always found that idea really, uh, really interesting. It, it, it connects into creative reinterpretation and like, and like you're saying, crisis situations. On the Titanic sinking, we're not going to be holding out for a nicer boat. And that could be like a perfect metaphor for encapsulating this moment in time of capitalism, right? Like we might be on the biggest lifeboat possible. So we're going to have to like re-examine all the technology and tools that we currently have to get us through these cascading crises that we're experiencing, particularly with this pandemic, as you were mentioning before we start recording, has not just material and physical damage that it's wreaking on people, but also deep psychological damage as well. And uh, we're going to have to start preparing, I think, for the collective grieving that's to come. That's already happening in some places, but it's just going to get much, much worse. So I like that metaphor, talking about the Titanic. That's probably what we're heading for with capitalism. And maybe malls is a good place to focus on for the reinterpretation of our tools that we have. So let's talk about it after the revolution. Like, what do you think malls could look like after the rev? So imagine this. You uh, want to get something, the, whatever instinct we have to go shopping now, you know, the desire to attain, express, and all that within. You go to a place, it looks like a mall. There's people there like a mall. There's food. There's toys, video games, clothing, all the things that you like, all the things that you love. The abundance of the mall is there, grocery stores, you name it. And there's people around, happy, everything's normal, except in your head, you know that the things there are built to last intentionally, that the things there aren't just designed to break after a short little while of time. You know that no one there is trying to like screw you over. No one in the mall there is going to like tell you something incorrect about a shirt to make you take it home. No reason to not, because the only thing that really changes from the consumer end, the consumer user experience, is when you go to the sort of like checkout at the store, you're not giving over a credit card to have power tokens taken away from you, biosecurity resource tokens. You're just checking it out. You're saying, I'm taking this shirt now. This is the color of shirt. This is the identifying code of the shirt. I am this person. I'm taking it home. It is reflected on the back end through a series of both local and larger scale computing services that you don't have to worry about that specialists deal with that manages what there's scarcity of and what there's not scarcity of. Anything that you take from the mall, like an enormous multi-varied library, most of the time you're going to be able to keep it as long as you want because the fact of the matter is that on earth, you know, we've always had the abundance to provide for human need. We've always had that ability and chosen not to use it. So this alternative version of malls, you know, the, whatever you take out from the mall, there's a place to return it. You can return it at the mall. You can return it at a booth in the corner. Maybe you can return it through your mail, like an Amazon type thing in reverse. You can figure out all sorts of like interesting new ways to keep this circulating abundance going through the economy. What we call on our show library socialism. The idea is that you can use less materials in providing more abundance. It's a, it's a material reason to say that like we've got tons of evidence to show 
that if you share things, you create abundance uh, amongst people. It's a social principle. And so I think the mall of the future is going to be very similar to the mall in all the ways we like and all the weird stuff about malls. It's going to not have to exist anymore. I'm not saying like we're turning the oceans to lemonade. This isn't a ridiculous idea. We know that libraries work. Uh, we know that like people don't really like destroying things specifically. So like people aren't going to be like, no, I want to, I'd rather keep, <laughs> keep losing money to be able to destroy the things instead of return it somewhere. Like I know so many people who are burdened by the fact that they feel bad that they have all this stuff that they don't want and they don't know how to get rid of it in a responsible way. They don't know how to make sure that it's actually used by someone who needs it. And, uh, you know, we figure out like mutual aid groups and redistributing groups to do this sort of stuff. But like, it'd be great if we could get an institution that's responsible to do that instead of putting the responsibility on all of us as individuals to be like these ethical agents within this like very twisted system. I want to talk a little bit about what those institutions could be like to enable this type of revolutionary mall. But I do have a Quick question about the interior of the mall itself, because one of the things my memory of malls working there was just how much bombardment of advertising space you're subjected to working there, being a consumer there. It was like nonstop ads. And now it's even to the point where you have like a phone. If your phone's in your pocket, you walk by a store, you're going to get an email or a text message from that place like, hey, we got a discount for you. So like now the ad space is like connecting with you into your phone. So there's still so much space in malls. There's so much stuff we could fill it up with. What do you think the advertisement space could be creatively reinterpreted to look like instead? It's such a beautiful question. And there's so many beautiful, wonderful, like, can you imagine the answers to this question we would get if people came together and thought about, we've got all this canvas around. What can we use this canvas for? The first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is like art, like beautiful photography, infographics that are relevant to people's lives, helpful. And for, you know, an example of the coronavirus crisis, public health information would be obviously something that you could put through something like that. Of all the different ways that we could be using the sort of like public relations infrastructure of society, people who are getting together to think about how do we convince people of things? How do we connect with people's attention? How do we capture people's attention and put it towards what we want? I think that sector too can be like creatively reinterpreted as a whole because there are things that are worth drawing people's attention to. A, a responsible use of the advertising infrastructure of the planet, if we're to creatively reinterpret now, we're going to keep all the billboards, we're going to keep all the signs, everything. All this canvas is going to be used somehow. There's so much we could do with it. And there's also so much we could do with it if we were putting even a fraction of the resources that go into the advertising industry to ask those same questions, but, but about social good. I don't know why this question popped into my mind, but I just, I got to ask it because it's there. One of the things for me and my experiences at the mall is kind of like the desire for cheap thrills, which, you know, I would get with my friends through shoplifting. Like I would just shoplift or it was usually my friends and they were using me as the stool, you know, like the stoolie to get by. But anyway, that's, that's all my own personal baggage. How would we get cheap thrills? Like after the revolution, if malls were reconfigured in this like beautiful way that you're talking about, like what about us teenagers that want to, that typically would go to the mall to shoplift? Like what are we supposed to do with this space now? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> cheap thrills, honestly, are probably, so there's two ways that I could answer this question. One of which is that I don't think you can ever take cheap thrills away from teenagers. Even in the most just society, the most supportive society possible, 
you know, there's something about going through that time and becoming uh, becoming what you're going to be and all this sort of like you're learning about yourself, your brain is changing and all this stuff. There's always going to be kids who don't check the book out of the library and just take it, you know, like some degree of that is going to exist. And I think structurally in society and socially of one another, we should be accepting of that as a reality that like, you know, especially kids, teenagers, a type of kid, just a lot of room to fuck up. There should be room to fuck up. But also, I think that's probably around the age, maybe 14, 15, 16, where you want to start training. So in a utopian society, in a perfected society, and after not perfected, but the preconditions of freedom, you know, having a society where people's basic needs are met. And we can sort of begin that process of the long move towards the horizon of utopia. You know, obviously, you never encounter something perfect. There's always challenges. But we know that people can overcome those challenges. And so that's what being a utopian means to me. And that's what I see in other utopians that I respect, like Karl Marx. When it comes to, you know, youth who are aging up through those teen years, in a utopian and perfected society, we want to be bringing them into levels of democratic process that we don't even give adults in this society. You know, we want to give them power in a real sense, like a real social power that's responsible, which is people's power being proportionate. Like we don't want to make teenagers all powerful, but we want to make them participate in committees where they reconcile their differences with other people, learn new things, teach each other things and go through that deliberative democratic process, probably even from a younger age, but especially during those teenage years, we wanna create like these institutions where people's voice matters in the world. And I think for a lot of like people who, when they were younger or now, misbehave under a system that is depriving them of a bunch of different things, I think a lot of those people would find that there's more satisfying ways to misbehave intellectually or uh, democratically to, to, to play the devil's advocate on tough questions in, in ways that are actually productive, not in ways that you're like harassing a stranger, but like for the purposes of coming with the best possible ideas in that context. I think a lot of that sort of, like I, I stole um, Pokemon cards like a lot because uh, my friends put me up to it. Also, I plead the fifth otherwise, but the, I don't know that I would have done that if I knew that I was valued in society and what I thought mattered and I had to, enough to understand about like politics and economics and, and this sort of stuff. Like, I think the amount that people will act out in ways that harm others, there's a lot of variety in how much harm is caused by different types of shoplifting by youth, but they would do it less if they were felt respected and known and useful and they had opportunities to enrich themselves. And they weren't told that what they care about and what they dream of is impossible. I think that that sort of way that we talk to children uh, and young people while they're developing, again, who they are, or who they will become about realism, you know, being realistic about stuff um, is, can be really damaging and sort of a type of systemic um, abuse and deprivation uh, from, from children. You know, actually, interestingly, the real in real estate comes from royalty. There's a real connection between saying be realistic and go according to the orders of the king. Well, it's really interesting too, the, the way you're describing this future society is not like a fixed state. Like even the mall itself as a brick and mortar thing doesn't necessarily operate as like a static institution. Like it's something that we can continue having a process of deliberation and changing and reinterpreting. Did you say that's right? Like, is this how you look at 
the future society, like a revolutionary society is not necessarily stuck or perfect in its like fixed state. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And actually I think this is maybe one of the most dangerous ways of thinking about revolution in an unrealistic way, where we think of revolution as something that happens as a thunderclap, where on one side of the line, everything's bad. On the other side of the line, everything's good. If you look at the history of revolutions, revolts, et cetera, these things take 10 years. They go back and forth in different ways. There's different you know, power dynamics and stuff that erupts through something like a revolutionary period. Um, and I think there's also different ways that different types of revolutions happen that we don't consider revolution because they're that like sort of because they don't they, they they don't meet that thunderclap format and they they can be based on technological change or social technological change cultural change a lot of those things I think are legitimately revolutionary to a degree in that they they do get at the root um, as people say but without having that overthrowing of society effect I think that is on the spectrum of revolution um, but then even in the cases where we're looking at like okay we're gonna take over the parliament building and do something else instead of parliaments or do parliaments in a better way or whatever variety that people have of that, that process is going to take easily 10, 12 years uh, to resolve. And it's no guarantee it will resolve any one direction. Understanding that connects to sort of, to me, a wider understanding of how developmental change happens in society and the, the sort of insight that being is becoming. You know, Ayn Rand always said A equals A, and she's like really obsessed with things are what they are, uh, but actually legit, like A doesn't equal A because A is always becoming in every moment. A is always differentiating. Like anything, things degrade over time, things grow over time, people learn over time. That's the shape of things. That's the shape of the universe. So if we're not going to think according to the shape of the universe, we're going to become like totally lost. You can't just have a perfect mall that works and it's static. We can think of a bunch of different things that are the conditions of a good mall, that we can try to increase over time, like you know, making sure that community members have access to hosting their own space or running their own. I'm at a loss for words, something other than business to describe <laughs> what it would look like. You know, people free associating society where they can provide worth and provide value to their community, right? Like, and I think that's what people who are involved in business now and consider the, themselves business people and look at the inspirational memes and all that. That's what they think they're doing. That's what they want to do. And they're doing it according to the container that we've given them. But to return to the, the, the point of like the non-static mall, we could try to make a static mall, but it's like trying to paint the smell of oranges. It's like, you can't do that. You can, it's like trying to translate a, a, the taste of soup into a song. It, it, it's just, it does not follow. As you're speaking, you're talking about the preconditions for like a better mall, a revolutionary mall. One of the things that, my mind landed on was thinking about the parking lots at malls currently, because the other thing about malls is like, they're not just the huge spaces unto themselves of these brick and mortar buildings. They're also these giant parking lots. And I wonder what you think those can be reinterpreted to look like after the revolution. Like what will the mall parking lots look like? I guess it depends how we structure um, our transit system. I'm really interested in the development of uh, what's, been called personal public transit, which is like things that fall in the space between like having a car or a bike that's your own versus going on a crowded bus where disproportionately women are going to be harassed a certain percentage of the time, et cetera. Like there's some real problems with buses and stuff from social perspectives under inequality. I don't want to downplay those or overplay them either because buses are massively important and they're like, we should 
be funding public transit to the highest degree. But if we're going to think utopian about this, maybe there's something you can have a, a, a construct in society where we have that sort of library of transit vehicle where people are taking a vehicle that's proportionate to the trip that they're taking every time. You know, if you're just one person, you're going to drive a one person sized car. And if you're not getting groceries, there's not even going to be a trunk. And then you can just like leave it somewhere where the system's going to help connect it to someone else. If we can configure all that stuff in the post-revolutionary context, the way that the parking lot would be presumably, I guess the land could be used for any number of things, but you'd need a lot less space. Maybe parts of like parking lots would become sort of transit hubs for this type of thing under something like this. Maybe we'd have a system of small cars guided by rails that go in the sky. I don't, I'm not sure. But also social space is massively important. I've, I've thought about this also with the street corners, you know, like where, where two streets cross each other and there's like this big circle of pavement. I feel like we should try to use that more like um, as communities and also as activists, you know, like throwing like mini block parties by surprise of various kinds and just blocking the road and just doing it like. I think we should sort of feel entitled to do that under this system. But yeah, when it comes to the parking lot and the malls in the in the future, I guess they'd be chipped away at over time and put towards more productive use than just collecting rays from the sun, uh, which is what, <laughs> what pavement does. I, it, it reminds me of like this quote from Lefebvre where he talked about under the concrete is the beach. Like, I think we could even think of like parking lots as this, like we could dig them up like break them up and like plant trees there. We could turn them into woods. We could turn them in the forest. We could turn them into beaches and have these parties that you're talking about too. That'd be totally epic. If you could just like go to this like beach party right outside the mall also, borrow a swimsuit. <laughs> it would have been it made my uh, teenage years in Buford, Georgia, much more entertaining and enjoyable. It wasn't just the sun beating down on me on this hot asphalt of a mile long parking lot. I'm getting angry thinking about my childhood. That's <laughs> just how, how cheap the malls were that I've been subjected to. We should go for these revolutionary malls. Well, for real, you were, you were, I know for a fact that you were let down. Like it, it, when you, when I think of back to myself as a child also, I, I, I can be moved to anger, not for myself. But if I think of myself as like another kid, I'm like, how the fuck did all of you let this happen to this kid? Like, just, just like, how is society organized where like that is the, the context in which children have to become aware of themselves. It's so, so just horrible. Like, yeah, I, and I, I think one of the things that we could do, we could do more um, in our utopianism and our leftism is, is bringing in that, uh, you know, sort of like Mr. Rogers or Raffi perspective of like, how does this affect children? Uh, because I thinking about a utopian mall where kids can have that sort of the fun side of the mall experience, like, trying out the video games, seeing toys, you know, going to different stores and all that stuff, like while being safe and not being exposed to things that are going to make them not like themselves for no reason. And like all the other weird stuff that we do to kids. It also makes me think of like the beach thing gets me thinking of like how much more stuff can we, how much more things can we stuff into one place? Like, can we just create this one magical community place where just like we have all these great things that people love doing? Where it's like, oh, yeah, I'll see you down at the place where everything is that we like. And it's like, yeah, you know, like it could be really um, could really be a beautiful thing. What do you think the institutions of this future society would need to look like in order to create the conditions for this type of mall to even exist? So if I'm going to be a little bit 
simplified in that question. What kind of government would we need first to even actually start enabling a mall towards the social good? So I want to be open-minded. I want to acknowledge a lot of possibilities. And I want to even say that maybe it's possible that bad governments structured through bad systems, very technocratic, even elitist, they could come to a conclusion like this. I don't want to, I do really believe in people. I think people can come to right conclusions, but I think that power can be really corrupting. And I, I think that lack of education is sort of a type of corruption also, like not having the context or it results in corrupt outcomes, corrupted outcomes are corrupted by the lack of information. It's not that the person themselves is turned evil or sour or something. It's that the decision-making process is corrupted by the lack of information. The only game, in t- and it's not really a popular opinion right now, but the only game in town is direct democracy. Like we need to engage everyone. We need to, you can't bring power to the people unless you distribute literally power to the people. You have to like give people, uh, like the example I gave with uh, teenagers younger, proportionate power over their own lives, where they know that they matter. They know that they can participate in decisions that matter. They don't just have freedom of speech to like run their mouth in a vacuum. They have freedom of speech to say, this is how it should be. And then they can see their phrase, this is how it should be, plinking through the system against all the other, this is how it should be. And then coming to a conclusion that they're like, you know what, that system worked. Like, I can see that my opinion mixed with other people's opinion and the knowledge that we all share together to create a conclusion that made as many people as possible happy, causes as little harm as possible, and et cetera. That's what like the end game would look like. That's what we try to hope to achieve in the end. I think there's a, a pretty strong argument that if you want to run things for social good, the best bet is to let people run them, like actually let people run them. And I understand that this comes in a time where we suffer from a lot of propaganda and we, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why people can be alienated from either their own interests or their own reason or their own ethics because of the way that these profit structures work. And I want to acknowledge that like 110%. But I really think at the end of the day, socialist, revolutionary, you know, anarchistic politics, even, uh, you know, what really motivates liberals, what really motivates conservatives at their heart is like, they want what's good for people. And what I'm talking about, I'm talking about conservatives specifically who don't hate certain people and liberals who specifically don't hate certain people and stuff, but like- So a small group. (laughs) So yeah, we can say that people who are really legitimately civically engaged, ethically engaged in the world, they can come to a variety of different conclusions based on a lack of information and stuff. But ultimately like we can't assume that we're just dealing with thoughtless sheep. We can't just assume that we're dealing with people who are like, half good and half bad, and we're going to have to like put the other half in prison in order to build a nice mall. It has to be a developmental process. And like I mentioned before about like the the way of the world as it is, is we're constantly in change. You know, this Hegel called it dialectics. Things are uh, in a sort of dance with their own differentiation. I don't think we can think of a beautiful mall occurring without the engagement development and developmental shape of people becoming engaged, getting access to more information, and using reason and ethics together to try to push themselves to further frontiers. That's how I see the structure of a utopian society. And to a degree, that's how I see the process of getting there. Talking about direct democracy, I've been reading some CLR James, and he had a lot of comments on direct democracy. And one of the things he said that I think is interesting that kind of falls in line with what you're saying is that he focused a lot on like, ancient Athens 
forms of direct democracy. Every cook can govern. It's a, it's a great essay. Exactly. Yeah. And he pointed out that like, basically the assumption here was that you could pick somebody's name out of a hat one day out of the year and put them into like a government administrative office and they just had to do it by rotation. So the idea was like, anybody can do it. But he said today it would be hard to impose that because the difference is that the Athenians were actually oriented towards government with the full expectation that one day their name was going to be drawn out of that hat. So they actually paid attention to these things. They were cultivated and socialized in a way to anticipate this possibility of being in a position where they have to like administer for the social good and have to like participate in governments in this directly democratic way. And what you're saying seems to suggest that that's lost today, but we could regain it. I think that's, I, I, I fully agree with that point. The other thing that I think is interesting about C.R. James and some of the people that are influenced by his work is that he pointed out that this form of direct democracy was prior to the emergence of the state, that it wasn't a state-bound system, that this kind of conflation of government and the state is a bad conflation. So I wonder what you think about that. Does it necessarily mean if we do direct democracy that the future society would be like an anti-statist one? Yeah, I mean, I think... It, it again, it depends a lot on the definitions here, but I, I tend to think that the way that state institutions are run, um, and I, I, when I think of the state, I, I think of property enforcement. Um, I think of like representative, representative bureaucratic systems that call themselves democracy. They actually didn't used to call themselves democracy until very recently when it was popular. I think of a variety of things that are really contingent that are not necessary to the functioning of a good society. So. I do think in the end game, it's not that you wouldn't have governance. It's actually that you'd have more governance, more detailed governments, more participatory governance, but it wouldn't be enforced by threat. It wouldn't be enforced by guys who wear a certain color, who are like disproportionately abusive in their homes. You know, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be enforced by a education system that is n not built on teaching children like how to think about things or, or what their place in the world is um, and actually very antagonistic to teaching them anything that relates to that. So I think so. And I think it's also a really good point to note that these democratic institutions in practice are disconnected from the state. Uh, David Graeber, and he's got this great book, Democracy Project, he points out in it that basically all through human history, as far as we can tell, there's been these outbursts of direct democracy, either by face-to-face -face council organizing or whatever else, where groups of people came together and made decisions. Um, but the thing is, is the people who were doing that were never the people in power because the people in power could just tell people what to do. But as a result, because of the way that history is written by the winners, they say, but history, they're not winners. They're actually huge pieces of shit. History is written by the huge pieces of shit that held everyone else down. So <laughs> the people who are being held down spontaneously come up with democracy, spontaneously come up with talking to each other face to face, solving problems together, regulating problems within the group, and then pushing forward for more participation, bringing more people in, distributing power to the people. It spontaneously and organically pops out all over the world in all these different contexts. Um, there's this interesting tidbit that I got from um, Abdullah Oshalan. He says that the first time the word freedom was ever used was in, the con in a Sumerian slave revolt. When you think about the big scale of history and all the different times where people came together to say, let's get this boot off of us. And then within that context, they all looked at each other eye to eye 
and they had differences. You know, I'm a plumber, uh, like I'm a candlestick maker. You're <laughs> this predates plumbing in my imagination. I'm a candlestick maker. Uh, you're a guy who carries water buckets. We're different, but for the purposes of this, you know, we're brothers. I mean, unfortunately, that's uh, very gendered for most of history, or in a lot of contexts throughout history, not all the time. But we're siblings. You know, we're we're like we we stand together for equality and to distribute power to, to, to all of us. Um, and when you think of the long scale of that, it feels to me like the natural politics of the left, the extension of the things that we care about to say, how do we take this instinct, this, this beautiful thing that shows up all across history in all these different forms, and without being unwilling to criticize, you know, for example, ancient Greece's various practices, which I do not co-sign and I do not like, but being like, oh, this is just one of the places where the flower of democracy in a way briefly bloomed. There's maybe something we can learn from it. But I think I'm not big on economic metaphors, but Martin Luther King said, we want to build a movement where we can cash the check of the past historical movements. There's been these, or promissory note, I think he maybe used. But all throughout history, we've had all these great promises made by human spirit of what we could do and we knew it was possible. We need to build the context in which that we can cash that check that has been written as long as humans have struggled and thrived for freedom and for better lives for the people around them. I, I, it's such a beautiful idea to me that we could, I mean, the mall could be a, a space for democracy. Like the mall could be the place where there's a, where you know that you can go and sign up to be sorted by a lot into a problem solving group related to some specific thing about education or whatever, or you could say, I'm willing to also, I'll help solve any problem you need. And then you get put on the uh, the garbage and like toilets committee or whatever. But like <laughs> in that group, like there's real serious questions about what toilets should be in society. And like, <laughs> if we could rent, like, and I love the lot thing. Like I love bringing in lotteries as part of it because it, it, it really is about having confidence that it's not just some prick making ideas. Like there's a process and that it's a process you can see and it's a process you can be part of. Um, and I think people should have a say in their lives, specifically on the things that really affect them, not necessarily like everyone votes on everything all the time. Like, I don't think that's actually the spirit of direct democracy. The spirit of direct democracy is having a vote on things that affect you and having a system where power is decentralized, where people are standing next to each other, not above or below each other, like we have with this current representative system. You know, it was literally invented and suggested as the compromise between rule by the rich and democracy. And democracy seen, was seen as chaotic, synonymous with anarchism. And maybe it was more synonymous with anarchism than, than we uh, were admitting back then. Well, I think that what you've laid out and sketched here is, I agree, really beautiful and interesting. We have parking lot beaches and spontaneous black parties, liberatory schooling, direct democracy and shared power. We have malls that are geared towards socializing and the common good. All of this stuff sounds great. What I like to talk about in these uh, series of episodes on After the Revolution is how do we get there? Like, how do we materialize our imagination? And obviously, that's the most difficult question. So we're not trying to say we're being prescriptive here and we know the way necessarily. But if you were to suggest some possible pathways to getting to this revolutionary mall, how, how would you suggest it could be? So yeah, it is a complicated and many variable process. And I think 
the one true and glorious revolution that shall bring humanity from a lower stage to a higher stage of self-organization and wholeness is going to have a lot of things within it that we can't predict explicitly and will be made fools of if we try too much. Uh, but I'll, I'll just, I'll be a little bit foolish. I think we shouldn't underestimate the realm of ideas and the realm of how increasing understanding and education about what is possible. Because a lot of people are sort of trained into this sense of impossibility. Um, and I think that's something that's really great about this series in particular is like helping more people to at least consider a wider variety of what is possible. Because I've heard someone say like self-confidence is tied to how much possibilities you feel, how many choices you think you have. Like people get less self-confident when they're like, oh, I can't do this. My boss sort of like, oh, it's like this pushing down kind of thing. When one of us, you know, as a, a participant in politics and the ideological realm um, and in the organizing realm, but specifically talking about the ideological for a second, when we teach someone that something else is possible, we make them more free. We make them more free to think. And so it's a small type of freedom. And don't get me wrong, I think you can't liberate someone from like literal bondage, wage slavery, or whatever, because you told them a good idea. But we need to know what is possible. We need to recognize that possibilities and potentialities are a type of fact. They're not just dreams. They're a type of fact. Um, because if we really think through them and think through them together, and we hear back, oh, well, that's an interesting idea, but what about this at your mall? Like, isn't this a problem with your mall idea? Like that process at its best form is the most beautiful thing. It's like this group reason process where then we're all thinking together in detail, like, oh, these different, so how does the ice rink work? You know, like, or how does this part work? And that's the process where genius comes from. It's, it, it doesn't come from individuals. It comes from people really working together. And so part of being able to create that is giving people the factual education that a better world is possible in every way. And, and, and that we, we keep impossible on a very limited place. Like <laughs> the applications of the word impossible should be very limited. We're talking about things like me flying up suddenly into the sky without any reason and disappearing, you know, like that may be impossible. It's close to impossible. Maybe some something could happen. I don't know. I don't claim to know every detail of up there, but um, <laughs> like impossibility is something that is inflated intentionally by the advertising industry, by politicians, by people who are trying to sell us things because they want to convince us that the joy of them all comes through swiping the credit card. And we need to call bullshit on that. It's the least good part of the mall paying money. There's a lot of other stuff that we really kind of like. It's fun to go to the movies or whatever, you know? So I think really, really the biggest point right now that everyone should participate in, I think, is talking about what's possible openly. And I think you can do that without being a, you know, committed, lifelong public revolutionary. Like a lot of people, I assume, are going to hear this, are going to go to jobs and feel like they're just a person who's interested in this. They're not someone who wakes up in the morning feeling like they're going to revolutionary war every day or something. But that's something everyone can participate in, and it makes ripples in society and human consciousness that are profound. Um, and then in terms of organizational strategy, I think we need to look to thinkers like uh, Modibo Kidali, Abdullah Oshalan, Murray Bookchin towards a sort of anarchistic, neither state nor anarchy, dual power 
direct democratic prefigurative organization. Uh, so that's a lot of complex words. I can unpack that more in detail what that means. But I think this is our, our best bet and puts us in the best position to deal with any threats that we might face and puts us in a better position to make it that when even like, say, for example, socialists run for office, there's a higher chance they're going to be able to win. Or even if they don't, that the people who are in power know that they're accountable to these groups that are growing and large and have sort of committed points of view and stuff. So in order to win over the support of these organizations, they actually have to change ourselves. I don't think we can go into the electoral politics, the electoral process. And I actually say this as someone who's worked professionally as a campaign manager in Canada uh, for multiple elections. And I've been involved in electoral politics from the left and socialism, socialist electoral politics. I think it can be good. It can be part of the picture. But unless we have like a real organized group movement where there's direct democratic institutions that people already participate in, where they are getting education when it comes to like what democratic participation is like, I don't see another pathway that makes sense in terms of like creating organizations on the left to, to, to push it. But actually, I should say also, that's that's the mass vision. And then we can say that there's you know, mass politics, and then there's smaller like affinity group politics. So small groups of committed people change the world all the time. And we need to have that to a certain degree. I would just emphasize that I think those people, to the highest degree that they can when participating in mass organizations, should be very conscious to remember that they're not dealing with sheep. They're not dealing with idiots. They're dealing with people who are, in many ways are even smarter than them in some ways, you know, and that they, we recognize that if we're going to have a group that's interacting with mass politics, I'm not showing up there to try to like whip the perfect amount of votes to ram through the thing I want, even if other people don't like it, unless I really need to. I'm there because we're building institutions and building political consciousness that extend beyond me and my group, that, that make more people in the world see the things that we do. And or really legitimately, and I think this is a fine distinction, but it's like, if we recognize that what we're thinking is true and important, it's our responsibility to try to make as many people understand it as possible. And that's different than thinking that people are sheep or they're dumb or something, or like that I need to like trick them into voting a certain way at a certain time. And that's the logic of electoral politics. And that's the logic of, you know, like when you're running an election and this it's one of the things that disturbs me about participating in elections in the past. And then like, is when, when the rubber hits the road, you're not trying to convince people of this or that policy or idea most of the time. You're trying to get a ballot in the box. And the ballots and boxes, the qualitative features of different ballots don't matter. Like, you know, like that, the, in, our system is set up like that, where if, if it doesn't matter what the context in which the ballot in the box gets in, it encourages this, this sort of thinking about people as like puppets to be controlled and like where you're you're sending out mailers because you want to like shock and confuse them, not because you want to educate them, build their political consciousness, turn them into the types of citizens that you'd want in a free society. And I think also, unfortunately, that sort of thinking from electoral politics can seep into radical politics. Because people start thinking in the world in terms of, well, look at the Republican Party. They're so awful. Um, so that means that everyone who votes for them inherently has got something wrong with their seed. You know, <laughs> like, so there's a certain percent of the population that has something wrong with their, like, deep core. And there's a certain per percent of the population that's 
redeemable. But I think understanding child psychological development, the propaganda industry, and all this stuff, there's potential in, in everyone, or at least a vast majority of people, to achieve a level of political consciousness and achieve a level of decency that, that, that we'd agree with. And a lot of what we perceive in these realms of the horrible things that people do are stimulated and engaged actively by institutions like political parties and so on. Like, I, I don't think we can assume that the horrible way that people treat each other around us is the result of unmediated human instinct or something like that. Because we know for a fact that we're constantly polluted with people telling us you're either better or worse than other people. You have to always figure out when you meet someone, am I better than them or am I worse than them? Or like, you have to like rank, oh, who's your favorite friend? I've always found that conversation, like that, that question so disturbing. Who's my favorite friend out of like, I love these people. Like, you're going to make me pick one? And it's like, no, no, like, I don't have a favorite friend. It's important to me to not. Like, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a really weird question. Uh, but it's completely normal. And then, and this is, this is what we tell children. No wonder that they act that way. Like, no wonder they, they come home crying, you know, like, oh, this stuff, it's, it's, it's disturbing. We need to start thinking about how would we think in a just society and start trying to think that way now to the highest degree that we can. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me of um, Tithi Bhattacharya I heard on a recent interview describing something similar in that she asked her students that she teaches, why is it necessary that it be trained to do the Pledge of Allegiance? When you're growing up, like if you loved your country, why would you have to be like indoctrinated to do this? And she said, if you have to do that, why do you not similarly have to be trained to learn songs and learn pledges of love for your parents? Right. Like obviously one's organic and one is like you have to like actually go against the human instincts that probably are being inhibited in this society. I think that's really interesting. But the other thing you're saying that I just want to tease out here is the implication of this conversation is that realistically, we need to start thinking of every worker at a mall as a future revolutionary. Because if malls can be revolutionary spaces, it means any workplace can be a revolutionary space. And that all of our organizing really needs to approach people with that same level of confidence and that attitude that we're talking to agents of a revolutionary society. Would you agree with me on that? A hundred, a hundred percent. Yeah. Totally. Because we live in an unjust society. So we want people to be agitated towards revolutionary change, things that grasp the problems by the root and help fix them. That's contingent. I just want to note is like, we, we don't necessarily want to talk to everyone and be like, the purpose of political life is always revolution. Like the purpose of political life is always fundamentally changing everything about society. Because presumably, you'd be able to achieve something where you wouldn't have to do that, you know? So I see the development of revolutionary consciousness as being very deeply tied and sort of like a subcomponent part of political consciousness. And, and at the mall, you're going to encounter people who come from a variety of perspectives, um, a variety of like either partisan, but more primarily people who are low information on the political world, you know, like maybe they tend to vote a certain way if they vote at all and stuff. And they carry with them a bunch of assumptions about the way things are and the way things should be that, that sort of like come from society. Murray Bookchin talks a lot about ancient Greece also um, and 
the same way CLR James did in very similar context. And one of the concepts from ancient Greece that he takes is paideia, which is the concept of like political experience. And he maps it to Marx's idea of revolutionary subjectivity and says basically like the building of the revolutionary subject that Marx talks about should be better understood as the building of political citizenship in a, in, in a deep way. Citizenship in the highest form of it, not like patriotism to a nation, but say like a real responsibility to the community around you, always wanting to do what's best for the people around you participated and so on. And the reason that I specify this difference is because I suspect that if you go to the mall and you say, hey, we're organizing a revolution as your opening line, you'll find some people, you'll find some people for sure. It's not guaranteed they'll be a leftist, but you'll find some people who are down. But there's another way to approach where we can talk about politics more broadly and, 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 and what should be. And if we do that, and that's the first step, that we're bringing people into the realm of what should be and connecting the things they don't have to what they should have and all that sort of stuff. It's the start of the process that leads to revolutionary consciousness. But it's also the start of the process to know when revolutionary consciousness is over. And we're focused on the main the maintaining of the society, you know. So yeah, I see it as a very developmental. It's almost on the edge of language. I struggle talking about it, um, like what it, what it means that being is becoming. You know, what it means that you can't just be something. You have to change over time, and what the implications are, um, especially when thinking about political thought and democracy. But yeah, the people that you meet have revolutionary potential. They have wise. I hesitate to use the word revolutionary because I think of revolutionary as not necessarily referring to the left, but like they have the potential to be full, good, deep political thinkers who will be able to teach you things. And they can already teach you. Even people who are soaked in propaganda can teach you things. And I think a lot of the time we sort of hand wave people away saying, your concerns aren't valid because you're a product of propaganda. But it's like, no, let's just unpack those concerns because even if they think it's not true, or e even if you know that it's not true, that what they're like accusing Joe Biden of <laughs> is not true or something like that. Are they concerned about something that has legitimacy? Like, are they concerned? Are they being moved from an ethical place? Like they're against child trafficking or something like that? You know, like it gets distorted and pulled out in all these loops by all these institutions of power and money and stuff like that. But these people have souls, like souls in the sense of like they're legitimately concerned and aggrieved by the idea of harm the way that we all are. And so like, how do we bring that out of people? How do we meet people where they're at? Not in a way that we're compromising our values, but we're helping grow them from the seeds of political consciousness they have into the flower of political consciousness. You know, um, There's an interesting Hegel quote that Bookchin references where he says, basically, you know, you can't hate the bud, but love the flower, the same process. I want to bring us to a conclusion here and ask you, for our listeners, are there any projects or organizations or folks organizing in the way that you're talking about, like things that you want to highlight for folks just to get connected to wherever they might locally be or nationally be or internationally be? Like, what would you highlight as like, these are people trying to bring about this more utopian place? There's different degrees of it in different groups. And generally speaking, in any local area, it's not guaranteed you'll be able to find someone who fits this way of thinking, actually very unlikely. Um, but there are a few groups. There's, there's a few groups that are arising around democratic confederalism and solidarity with the Democratic Federation in northern Syria and, and Rojava. 
there's also groups like there's the Institute for Direct Democracy and Social Ecology, which is where Modibo Kidali works out of. There's also the Institute of Social Ecology. They do educational work. But also, I think in, in your community, stuff like mutual aid organizations, stuff like Food Not Bombs. And I know there's an assembly, there's an Olympia assembly. I think there's a Portland assembly and maybe a Seattle assembly still. I can't remember if it's still going. You can look to your, it's often called an assembly if people are trying the direct democracy stuff. But the values of this, I think, can be pushed forward in almost any type of leftist organization. I think the real question to look at with, with these orgs is what work are they doing? Are they doing good work? Are they doing work that I want to be a part of? Um, so things like tenants unions, uh, mutual aid orgs, Cooperation Jackson is doing really impressive stuff, uh, combining a bunch of these things. That's what I'd advise generally, although I've uh, had trouble finding <laughs> good stuff to interact with myself here locally in Vancouver. So I know the struggle. I would suggest, though, going back to our attitude that we're all agents of the future utopian malls, that we can create these organizations where we might be, even if they don't exist currently. Absolutely. So that would be my, my encouragement to listeners. I've really deeply enjoyed this conversation. This has been a lot of fun. It's been really interesting, sparked my imagination in a lot of ways. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us on Labor Wave and have this conversation about malls after the revolution. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, no, this is uh, my favorite thing to talk about and being able to really get into the mall side. So good. Yeah. So thanks a lot for having me on. It was, it was a blast.